Michael wants to know what's going on. Michael, what's going on? I don't know. What's going on, Paul? Who wants to know? Michael wants to know. <laughs> I think we should let Michael know what's going on. Yeah. Break out the saxophone and the body oil. It's now playing Lost Boys Retrospective Series. If you know, if you try to stop us or vamp out in any way, then I'll stick you without even thinking twice about it. In preparation for Lost Boys The Thirst, coming direct to DVD this fall, our Lost reviewers Jacob, Marjorie, and Arnie will be watching and reviewing all three films. We're dedicated to a higher purpose. We're fighters for truth, justice, and the American way. These podcasts will be spoiler-filled and may contain objectionable language. Listener discretion is advised. Now you know what we are. Now you know what you are. You'll never grow old, Michael. You'll never die. But you must feed. Today we're discussing The Lost Boys, starring Jason Patrick, Corey Haim, Diane Wiest, Bernard Hughes, Edward Herman, Kiefer Sutherland, Jamie Gertz, and Corey Feldman, directed by Joel Schumacher. Produced by Richard Donner, this is Artie, co-host of Now Playing. This is Jacob from Los Angeles. And this is Marjorie, not from Los Angeles, like Stuart. Marjorie, are you excited to do a sexy vampire movie? Because I am. Because it is the hottest vampire movie ever. I'm not talking about Robert Pattinson. I'm talking about Alex Winter's mullet. That is <laughs> the best mullet ever with the crimper that he's got in it. It's awesome. Oh, it's it's a beautiful thing. No wonder he went on to successful movies like the Bill and Ted franchise. Was this before Bill and Ted or after? It was before. Oh, see, I didn't see Bill and Ted till much later. So I was like, hey, it's the guy from The Lost Boys. I don't know him from Bill and Ted. And now nobody knows him from anything except Bill and Ted and the Lost Boys. Isn't he like a big director or something? He has directed. Oh. So like we always do, we should start with a plot summary. The Lost Boys tells the story of Michael Emerson and his young brother Sam, played by Jason Patrick and Corey Haim respectively, who just moved with their newly divorced mother Lucy, played by Diane Weist, to Santa Carla, California to live with their crazy taxidermy nut grandpa however they don't realize santa carla is the murder capital of the world and it is the murder capital of the world because of all the damn vampires michael gets mixed up with star a hot brunette played by jamie gertz and her bad boy gang of friends who turn out to be vampires led by the vampire David, played by Kiefer Sutherland. David turns Michael into a half-vampire by having Michael drink the blood of the head vampire, and Michael will become a full vampire when he makes his first kill. But his brother Sam, desperate to save him, enlists the help of the Frog Brothers, comic book salesmen and vampire hunters, who say that by killing the head vampire, all half-vampires, which includes Star, Michael, and the little boy vampire, Laddie, and they will be reverted to their human state. The Frog Brothers attack the vampires in their lair, kill one of them but are scared off. The vampires then follow Michael, Sam, and the Frog Brothers back to Michael's house where they attack. A big fight ensues, death by stereo, 
Michael impales David on the horns of an antler, but finds he's not human because it turns out that David was not the head vampire, but Max, the unassuming video rental store owner who was dating Sam and Michael's mother, is the head vampire. It was all his plot to turn Sam and Michael into vampires so that their mother would join him and be the mother of his vampire brood. But Grandpa drives his truck into the house, launching a fence post at Max, killing him as well. So Marjorie Jacob, this movie's 23 years old. Why are we doing a Lost Boys retrospective? Because we must. Well, because it is there. Exactly. (laughs) Why do we do any movie review? Well, usually it's because there's a new one coming out. And this one's a little bit different because there's two sequels to The Lost Boys, but they're direct to video, which is usually a bad sign. So I'm kind of wondering why we're doing this, too. All of us went to San Diego Comic-Con, and there was the Feldman himself introducing The Lost Boys 3. I I can only hope at San Diego Comic-Con 2011 we'll have the direct-to-video license to drive to. Oh, presentation God. by Corey. We're going to review this film honestly. We're going to review Hames' performance honestly. No disrespect to Corey is intended. We're just doing what we do. But yes, with us having seen The Thirst, which will be out on DVD this fall, we're reviewing all three of The Lost Boys films, starting with this 1987 original. The Lost Boys is a seminal 80s teen flick. Why don't we discuss our background with The Lost Boys? I can't say any of us are the newbie. I actually couldn't find a newbie to The Lost Boys, at least the original. I'm, I'm going to say I'm kind of a newbie because I just recently discovered this franchise. Really? I remember this coming out when, when I was a kid. I never saw it. I, man, it was as recently as probably about six months ago. My wife with her insomnia is up at like two in the morning doing laundry. And this was on TV. And she sees that it's Corey and Corey. So she watches it. Good woman. Yeah, she's a huge Corey fan. Excuse me, a huge Corey's fan. You, you got to do the plural there. She owns License to Drive on DVD. She bought it the day it was released on oh. DVD. Oh. <laughs> so she watches this and becomes obsessed. And I'm, I'm just going to put this out there. There is a sexy vampire movie. It might not be Twilight, but there is a sexy vampire movie for every woman out there because she became obsessed with this film. After seeing it, she's like, you have to watch this. You have to watch this. And so, like, a couple of days later, they replayed it, and I watched it. I'm like, this movie is awesome. And, like, I call my best friend up. I'm like, dude, have you seen Lost Boys? This is, like, the greatest, like, movie ever. And he's like, um, when we lived together, I owned it on VHS. <laughs> I'm like, dude, that's, like, one of the videos of his I never watched. And and so I'm a big fan, uh, at least about this first film as we get into this uh, series. But I, I, I'm pretty new to it, probably, you know, less than a year into The Lost Boys for me. Oh, my God. I love this movie when it came out. I was not a Corey's fan. I actually couldn't stand them, and I really wanted to stab them in the face. I just don't care for them. They're annoying. They can't act, and they're really bad. But dear That's God, the whole appeal. <laughs> I know, but I just – it's not so much – they're really bad, but it's that bad kind of – I just hate them. I do not like the Corys, okay? I was the only girl in my high school and middle school that did not like them. I was the outcast. But Jason Patrick, oh – Man, he was hot in that movie. 
He had the whole Jim Morrison vibe going. He had the leather jacket and the curly hair that was always perfectly styled. I love this movie. It was so great. I used to watch it over and over and over and over again. I kind of had a weird history with this. This movie came out in 87, and that was right around the time I was really getting into horror. 87 was the first time I'd seen A Nightmare on Elm Street, and I just moved to Florida and moved at the beginning of summer. I didn't know anyone for months. All I had were movies and Fangoria and books. And The Lost Boys was featured in a Fangoria magazine, and I thought it was like this horribly gory film. It was the scene where the vampire gets knocked into the bathtub. So I got to see all these scenes of, like, melting faces and everything, and I'm like, oh, well, I I was brand new into horror, and just I wanted everything with horror, so I'm like, I gotta see this! But it was already a little bit out of theaters. I went to a bookstore, and I found the novelization. So I bought the novelization and took it home and read it. And I'm like, it's not too bad. It's okay. It's fine. And then I saw it on video and just really liked it. I watched it probably a good hundred times. I came back to this movie in the 90s and I didn't think it was really all that good when I revisited it. And this is my first time seeing it in well over a decade. But I had great memories of it as a kid. I, not so much as a young adult. And don't you wish you held on to that novel? Because you could get some buku bucks out of that thing now. I couldn't believe it. I actually was looking, and the cheapest beat-to-crap copies on Amazon go for $20. And I, of course, like probably pitched mine because I, I bought paperbacks all the time as a kid. I just couldn't read enough, and eventually I ran out of book space, and Lost Boys was probably one of the first in the garbage bin. When watching it again, I knew very little about it. I knew it was directed by Joel Schumacher. And I just have to say, I hate Joel Schumacher. <laughs> yeah, there's there's not a lot of good things to say about him. I agree with you there. <laughs> I remember as a kid again, thinking he was John Hughes. I thought John Hughes did St. Elmo's Fire. And it would have been a much better movie had <laughs> John Hughes done St. Elmo's Fire. As it is, it's literally unwatchable. I revisited the brat pack films in my early 20s and realized St. Elmo's Fire was one of the weakest. The thing is, Schumacher makes films I should like, I think. I mean, we look at Flatliners and Batman Forever and Batman and Robin and The Client. All of these films are films that I should like and he fucks up. And I think my true hatred for him came, I know for a lot of people, it was probably Batman and Robin. Yeah, definitely a low point in American cinema. Thank you, Joel Schulmacher. Even though I still to this day quote Arnold anytime I can. Okay, that is the one I have seen then. Okay. <laughs> I don't know the early Batman movies. I'm not a big Batman fan. Once you've seen Batman and Robin, it does not leave your mind. It, it is <laughs> that impressionable. But truly, where I wanted to drive a stake through Joel Schumacher's heart, Phantom of the Opera. Is that the one we saw that came out recently? With Gerard Butler? Yes. As oh, the with Phantom? the rock music? Yes. yes. I was a huge Phantom of the Opera fan that in was high Gerard school. Butler? Yeah, that was Gerard Butler. Oh. I loved the original music. The, I had seen it several times live, and Schumacher fucked it up really badly. So I researched Joel Schumacher and found out, do you know his origins at all, both of you? No, I don't. I Does don't. it have to do with uh, nuclear waste? No. It has to do with the fact that he used to be a window dresser for, like, department stores and fashion. And so now when I think of Joel Schumacher, all I think of is Hollywood from Mannequin. 
I was I, that's the first thing that came to my mind when you said window dressing. <laughs> yeah, that's how, how could it not? <laughs> and once you realize this, once you realize that this man comes from a world of fashion, rewatching his movies make a whole lot more sense. Because if you saw Phantom of the Opera, the whole thing was window dressing. There was no acting, no story. He even pissed on the music. But goddamn, if there weren't painted half-naked men with gold body paint head to toe pretending to be statues. And if you look at the Lost Boys, Sam's outfits are incredibly garish and 80s so much that you would actually see them in some sort of display like a fashion show or a runway. No, no. There's no... At one point, he's wearing a Southwestern-style trench coat. There is no way that ever existed. There's no way anyone... <laughs> I can understand the bright, loud shirts he wears. I remember owning shirts like that. But no one wore Southwestern trench coats. <laughs> so when watching it this time, I'm like, okay, it's Joel Schumacher. And I have to say, I think perhaps his best film, maybe other than The Lost Boys, is Phone Booth which also Kiefer is in. But mostly I hate his stuff, and I'm sitting there, and then all of a sudden I see a Richard Donner film, and I'm like, the guy who made Superman's involved with this? I had no clue. This was originally supposed to be a Richard Donner film, but then he got off making you know, this little film called Lethal Weapon and bequeathed Lost Boys to the window dresser. See, I, I thought Richard Donner was involved because they just needed a bunch of extra footage from Superman because you get all these scenes of just clouds, someone flying through clouds. And I, <laughs> I figured that's how they could get that footage cheap. Do you know, was this before or after Goonies? Because I know Richard Donner did Goonies too. And this has a bit of a Goonies vibe to it. It was after Goonies. I have been living and breathing Lost Boys. If you can't tell, I'm probably the Lost Boys fan here. This was after Goonies, and the original script that Richard Donner was going to direct was basically Goonie Vampires. Everyone in it was eight years old. The Frog Brothers were fat Cub Scouts. Star was a boy because there wasn't a love story. It was just a friendship. And it was Joel Schumacher who came in and he only agreed to direct this movie. He reads a kid's movie. He reads Goonies with Vampires and goes, I want to make it sexy. And so he only agrees if he can up the ages to make it sexy. Hence the film we got. Well, and you know what? Again, it's hard for me not to think of Twilight as we talk about this in 2010. Uh, because that's what most people uh, younger than us, a generation younger than us, think of when they think of vampires. But I'm glad it's a sexy vampire movie because vampires have always had a bit of, uh, of the sex appeal to them. So I'm kind of glad I didn't get Goonies with vampires. Uh, you know, even as a uh, very secure heterosexual man, <laughs> I, dude, Keith or Sutherland in this movie, sexy vampire. Yeah, he's kind of hot. Yeah, he, he even though he has a, a bit of the 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 hockey hair mullet going on, yeah. it, it fits with the times and dude, he's got like that pale punk goth thing going. So And the trench coat. There you go. Yeah, totally. I actually always had a thing for Jamie Gertz in this and the way really? she dressed. She yeah. cannot act. I am so sorry, but that I, I don't think she's in it to act. <laughs> no, but she acts the same as she did in Lesson Zero. She has like one mode and that's it. No hey, she was great on Still Standing. Yeah. Okay. She was good on that. But she doesn't really do that well. She was All right, but she was hot and she was well-dressed. She was very cute and she had great costuming. I was listening to the special features on the Blu-ray for this and Richard Donner said he walked into Schumacher's office and just after Schumacher got the job, 
Schumacher was like cutting out outfits and putting up the clothes the Lost Boys were going to wear. That was his focus was how they looked, not how they acted or anything else. It was all about how they looked. And so Joel Schumacher gave us this. However, you know, even though I dislike the man and if his name is attached to direct, I am more likely to not see it than to see it. This movie is still a classic. I don't think that you it can be denied. I mean, first of all, let's talk about the opening song that this movie starts with. Cry Little Sister. That's an iconic song now, though. It's very mystical. I may be jaded because I will admit I once saw a stripper stripped of the Lost Boys soundtrack. I think you are jaded. Including but Cry the Little Sister. The entire si- soundtrack? <laughs> no. Put the CD in and let it go? <laughs> He leads a very weird life. It was, it was Cry Little Sister and the other song from the lead singer, A Foreigner. She stripped to those two. And so perhaps this has warped my fragile little mind, but is Cry Little Sister a sexy song? Is there some incest in Cry Little Sister? I didn't think so. I never thought that way. I don't think so. Maybe. As we get into this film, I've been reading some weird stuff that people have, have been coming up with theories about this film. Some of those theories might have to do a bit with the incest so it, it's it's not totally out there it's just the whole cry little sister come to your brother especially since they also play that song when jason patrick and jamie gertz are having sex and you know i i just really well, the wonder. song by the guy from foreigner wouldn't have really fit there <laughs> and they maybe didn't have a big budget for another sexy song yeah they didn't have the budget to actually get the doors version of uh People are strange. They just got Echo and the Bunnymen. Which is a pretty 80s thing to do anyway. I mean, they could have got Devo to cover it as well. All right. I have two things about People are Strange. First of all, I was a child of the 80s. I probably dressed pretty close to Sam other than the trench coat. I want pictures. (laughs) Except for the vanilla ice years. Yeah, except for the vanilla ice years. (laughs) But I had never heard any song by the doors. What? And when when this movie, I was big into it, I'm like, I love this song. I love this song. I'd never heard it before. And I was talking to Stuart, who co-hosts, and he's like, yeah, don't listen to the Doors version. You won't like that one. It's not as poppy. So we start off with People Are Strange and the Santa Carla montage. And there's all of these missing children signs. And in watching it this time, are we supposed to think Kiefer and them are eating little boys? Uh, Again, things I never thought of. But thank you for putting all this weird sexual tension no, in my movie like that I like. No, not like feeding them that way. I mean, like, feeding on little children. They're feeding on anyone they can find. They're vampires. We don't know if these are the only vampires. They're the only ones we ever see. But, yeah, I think they are getting at that they're eating kids. I mean, they're easy prey. You know, sometimes you just don't feel like the hunt. <laughs> and you just want some fast food. Maybe it's like veal. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's more tender. It just seems like in the movie they only feed on fat security guards and surfers. So, I mean, yeah, they kind of, they must have given Laddie some blood to drink because they converted him. But, and Anne Rice totally ripped them off, by the way. I, I just want to say with the, this opening montage, uh, as you see the family moving from Phoenix, coming into Santa Carla, uh, people are strange as playing. I, I just really love this opening montage. You it know, is a good get, opening montage. You're right. It's, awesome because they think oh we're moving to california to the beach it's going to be awesome and beautiful and sexy and it's anything but and i just thought it was really well done the way that they they'll cut 
you know, to some punk rockers and then some cholos sitting on the corner and then some missing children signs. I believe this was supposed to be taking place up in Northern California. But, you know, people come out here to Southern California. Oh, let's go to Santa Monica Beach. Let's go to Venice Beach. And they're really crappy and dirty. And, and, and so I, I just thought it, it was a, a, you know, because that's something I've experienced. It, it's this gritty reality of what, you know, L.A. or, or what sunny California is like and, and just the juxtaposition with the music and just the way it was shot. I really like that opening scene. No, it's fantastic because, you know, growing up in the Midwest, California was the big crazy state where all the freaks lived. And you really did think it was just beautiful beaches everywhere and all of this wonderful stuff, movie stars everywhere. And it's movies and TV that introduce you into the idea that there are gangs in L.A. There are scummy people out there, just like you have here in the Midwest. So it does show, you're right, the great juxtaposition of they think they're going to this great place. And it's really just like any other town. It just happens to be on the water. Jacob, you talked about how it was shot. And I was very surprised to see that the cinematographer on this was Michael Chapman. He did Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and why he's on The Lost Boys. <laughs> I don't know. But this guy knew what he was doing with a camera. And I think the way this entire film is shot is one of its biggest strengths is you get some great camera work and some great use of light and dark in here. And it started off right here with this montage. You're not seeing the kind of stock shots that you would see uh, even of strange people in any other kind of movie. I mean, I've seen how many California montages in the opening of 90210 or even every time Eddie Murphy goes to Beverly Hills and none of them have this kind of interesting aesthetic and kinetic feel that this has. Yeah, it felt very authentic to me. Uh, having, you know, grown up and lived out here most of my life, it felt like you said, it wasn't stock footage. It, it's what you would really see. It got me to buy into this film right off the bat from that scene. And then we're introduced to the family, which is, again, we talked about how in the 80s on a previous podcast, divorce is such a major theme. And now we have a broken family. I, I made notes of that. I'm like, oh, Arnie always talks about this broken family, <laughs> 80s movie. Here we go. <laughs> Well, there we go. We got Jason Patrick and Corey Haim. I never was able to get a vibe on how old they were supposed to be. Jason Patrick's obviously over 16. I thought he was more like 18 to 20. He's got a bike. He's arguing with his mother about going back to school. I, I just couldn't get a vibe on if he was like going back to high school or going back to college. Yeah, it's not too clear. I, I figured high school. I thought maybe he was a senior or something, but he's going to drop out. And then we got Corey Haim, who, when this movie came out, was 16 years old. And I couldn't get a vibe on him either. I, th I think when this was shot, he was 14 or 15. In some scenes, he seems fairly mature. And then other scenes, he's rocking out in the bubble bath, which <laughs> I equate with like six-year-olds. Yeah, I asked Arnie, I said, did you do that when you were a teenager in the bathtub? Is that what you little boys do? Because No, little boys do something else when yeah. they're teenagers in the bathtub. Maybe it was a cover. <laughs> we're not. I, I got to say, I every once in a while would use the shampoo to make a pretty killer mohawk <laughs> while in the shower. So uh, I can relate somewhat. I, I never rocked out to 50s pop music, though. <laughs> Well, you know, that's the Ferris Bueller shower mohawk classic thing to do. There you go. <laughs> but, but that's in the shower. You're not air drumming to bubbles. <laughs> so I, I was never quite sure about that. And Diane Weiss just, she always seemed 
old to me for this part. I mean, she was only 40, but she just comes across always old. I thought that in Parenthood, too. See, I, I totally associated her with Parenthood. I don't know about a lot of the film she's been in, but does she always get stuck as like the divorced mom with the, the crappy kids that won't listen to her? I don't know. I've seen exactly two Diane Weist <laughs> movies, one of them being Parenthood and guess the other one. She, yeah, she was in Same Footloose. Oh, wait, I've seen three. She was in Footloose. I'm sorry. Okay. And she was married in Footloose. So, so she can't be married. She can't play a married woman in a film. That's good to know. Hannah and her sisters is what she's famous for. It's a very famous yeah, one. That's what movie. she won her Oscar for. Yeah. And then right off that Oscar, Lost Boys. Of course. <laughs> well, she well, was signed to it before. It's like Halle Berry and Cuba Gooding Jr. Once you get your Oscar, you could just do payday movies. Snow Dogs, Catwoman, <laughs> Lost Boys. Uh, one of these are obviously higher caliber than the other. I'll let you guys decide which one. Snow Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I think it has a lot to do with her hairdo. And again, it always seems she has the very short hair, and so maybe it makes her look older. She always has a haircut that looks like she just got done with chemo like three months ago. <laughs> exactly. And I hate to no disrespect to anybody, but that's what her hair always reminds me of, is someone who's just shaved their head or had chemo. and The close cropness, uh-huh. yeah. And then there's Grandpa, played by Bernard Hughes. And who the hell cares? <laughs> he was pointless, I thought... Annoying. What are you talking about? I do so not like Grandpa. taxidermy all those animals. <laughs> I kind of always liked Grandpa. I mean, he's the weed-smoking, taxidermy and Grandpa, kind of crazy character. I think he's a little too broad. But, you know, this movie's part horror, part comedy, and he's there to introduce the comedy until the Frog Brothers show up. I thought it was a lot like the TV show Our House. <laughs> They moved in with the crotchety old grandpa, the single mom. You know, you know, once we get to the end of this film with grandpa, I kind of want to know his backstory because he obviously knows more than he's letting on this entire film. And it makes it. Why didn't he mention any of this to his family? He knows the secret of Santa Carla. You think he'd tell them not to move out there? You think he'd tell them don't move out here? There's vampires. Or, yeah, I, I'm kind of wondering what his deal is by the time you get to the end of the film. More to the point, perhaps he was afraid, you know, being an old man living on his own. His wife died not too long ago. If he starts talking about vampires, they're putting him in the home. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Here's crazy grandpa talking about the vampires again. Let's call up the home. But it's not long before Sam and Michael hit the beach and see the real star of this movie, the oiled up sax player. Oh, my God. Yes. What was that? <laughs> That was awesome. That's what it was. I remember the 80s fairly well. I don't remember a big fad where you would combine WWF wrestlers with soft jazz. <laughs> like rocking out, oiled pecs, playing the saxophone. Well, you grew up in California. Didn't you guys have that on every boardwalk? Not any boardwalk I went on. He was so into it, too. I mean, he's making these facial expressions. And he's thinking that, I still believe. But he just make all these facial expressions. He's a terrible lip syncer. He he is, I think, the icon of the Lost Boys. More than Kiefer. More than Jason more than Patrick. Alex mullet. More than Alex <laughs> Winter's mullet. The oiled up sax player. You show somebody that oiled up sax player, they immediately think Lost Boys. Oh, absolutely. I, I remember when I watched this for the first time, that's the scene it got to. My wife just started rolling on the floor laughing. Like She's like, this is why this movie's so great. I'm like, this scene makes no sense. I don't. <laughs> what world is there? There's people who play the saxophone are, are soulful jazz. They're Kenny G. Douchebags. 
Not, not necessarily going that far. Keep in mind the 80s. In the 80s, every band had a sax player. But they weren't over-sexualized like this. <laughs> They're, that's, it's just out of control. That's Don't you all. remember in Better Off Dead when seducing the French girl, Lane Meyer pulls out a saxophone? Yes, but he didn't rip his shirt off to reveal his six-pack abs. That's all I'm saying. That's what put it too far. I didn't mind the sax. It was the physique of the sax player that made me say, hmm. Actually, he's kind of a known sax player. He was Tina Turner's saxophonist. Well, no wonder he has that physique. He had a fight in Thunderdome. (laughs) At this point that I realized, you know, this movie was always intended to be a horror comedy. But nowadays, some of the laughs are just so unintentional when they were making it. I remember in the 90s when the 80s had its big comeback, right? And they were having all the 80s CDs on TV and everything. And I'm like, they have the people with the weird outfits and the neon clothes that I think. I didn't know anyone who dressed like that. But I watched The Lost Boys and I realized I lived in Florida during this time. I knew people who dressed like everyone on this boardwalk. (laughs) The big hair, the big shirts, the bright colors, the mullets. I had a mullet. I, I never had the mullet, but I like I said, I did rock the neon clothes. I thought they were really cool. I was really into the punk new wave look in the 80s. So I was always rocking like the bright pinks and, and bright blues and that. So I didn't realize how 80s this film was until that scene at the boardwalk and everything. And of course, Sam. Sam, the walking fashion victim in this. While we're talking about Sam. What was with his Rob Lowe poster on the wall? Did you see that? Uh, yes, I was. Okay, he's got Molly Ringwald, uh, a chick posing by a car in the G-string. And then, was that who that was, Rob Lowe? I just saw he yes. had his Rob Lowe pulling up, up his shirt. No yeah, less. I'm like. Was that he was pulling up the shirt? I thought he was pulling down the pants. I couldn't oh, quite tell. Why? I don't know. Pulling something, and I just hope Sam wasn't. Uh, you know, but that's personal choices. Whatever, you know, nothing wrong with that. He but. was a little confused. He did have the one earring, which my parents always told me was a sign of homosexuality. It is, absolutely. Only in a certain ear. <laughs> poster. I thought that was odd. So on the boardwalk, Sam, in his wonderful coat, Meets the Frog Brothers, Edgar and Alan Frog. I gotta say, even though I'd seen Gremlins, I'd seen Goonies, I had no clue who this guy was playing the Frog Brother. I'm sorry, I've never liked his smushed up face. And that's one of the reasons I can't stand the Corys. And that gravelly voice, come on. You're 12 years old. That's the appeal. Like, dude, here's the thing about the Frog Brothers. And, and this is why my friend was so shocked that I have never watched this movie before. And, and one of the reasons I loved it, one of the reasons my wife knew I love it. The Frog Brothers introduced the fact, I'm going to say it's fact, that comic books teach you about real life. You want to know how to fight vampires? You read comic books. Edgar Frog, played by Corey Feldman. Dude, this is a guy obsessed with comic books. He works in a comic book shop. Not sure how the child labor laws. It was owned by their parents, they said. Okay. I grew up in a family business. They'll work you like a dog. Okay. To have these kids, they they growing up around comic books. They obviously know they're teaching them real life knowledge. I thought it were Corey Feldman trying to be this like tough superhero type character, you know, trying to talk with this, I don't know, weird, you know, every 80s action star had their weird flexion, whether it was Arnold's or Sylvester Stallone. Just I just felt he's trying to emulate that. And that's part of the charm of this movie. You know, you talked about how this is horror comedy. I think that's where some of the comedy comes in is with this over the top character. Here's what's great about the comedy, though. Feldman isn't in on the joke. 
Feldman plays it completely straight. And that's why it's funny. He thought he was fucking Rambo. He got the yeah. thing tied in his hair, and he's talking like this. And Christian Bale totally ripped him off with that voice for Batman, by we the way. We know the origin of Christian Bale's Batman. <laughs> that's why this is funny, is he doesn't realize that he is funny. Yeah, I, I, I bet you Schumacher just said, dude, act like Rambo. There, there you, and just go with that. You're a superhero. Go, go with that. I, I love the character. I, I didn't think, you know, yeah, it, it's goofy, but I, it didn't seem as something forced because Corey does buy into it and just goes full steam ahead with it. What about Alan Frog? He kind of gets the short end of the stick, doesn't he? He doesn't get as many good lines. I don't recall a lot from him. No, I didn't even know his first name was Alan. <laughs> I guess I did because it's Edgar and Alan, like Poe. Mm-hmm. But he's such a non-character. He's really just set dressing. Yeah, so I, I think they carried over the brother idea, and, and one was a lot better developed than the other one. Do you see this as a Corey's movie? Because to me, Haim is one of the stars of the movie, and Feldman and Alan Frog are kind of off doing their own thing. Well, had the Corys, was this the first Corys film or had there been other Corey films? This before? was the first film where the two Corys were on screen together. Okay, because I, I think that makes sense because I don't think this was a Corey's film. Feldman was definitely a, a second tier character in this film. He's not quite third tier like Alex Winter and his mullet. He's not Kiefer Sutherland or even Corey Haim in this film or Jason Patrick. He, he's kind of in between. You know, the, the, I think the main, you know, out of the two Corys, this is definitely a Corey Haim movie. I, I thought he, you know, Corey Haim thought he was actually pretty funny in this film. He had a great, uh, a lot of good lines. But definitely this is not a Corey's film. This is like a proto Corey's. <laughs> this is where that spark came into existence. I mean, I, I looked at the DVD cover and Corey Feldman's not even on it. Corey Haim's in their way in the background, but there is no Corey Feldman on there. So I'm not going to be able to give my stamp of approval at this being an official Corey's film. (laughs) But it's a movie that started it all. It is. It's the proto-Corey's. Well, I guess because Joel Schumacher was going for his sexy vampire film, didn't feel Feldman fit the bill for the cover art. But yeah, I agree with you. Corey Haim, you know, tragic situation recently. He was great at this, though. I mean, he was really something as a child star. Lucas is a great film. He's great in that. And he was really good in this. Again, I couldn't quite get an age grip on him, but I think that's more the fault of the writing than anything. Perhaps certain holdovers from when they were all supposed to be eight. But I thought he really worked in this film. He had the right amount of humor and he gets a lot of great lines bringing in the you're a vampire wait till mom finds out those no 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 goddamn shit sucking vampire wait till mom finds out (laughs) no you guys are missing the the best line of all death by stereo oh that's an awesome line i want to talk about the kills in this film but yeah there's actually a band called death by stereo and i'm wondering if this film is the origin of that name that's awesome it has to be he unlike feldman was in on the joke he knew what he was doing was funny and he had good timing at it so he's in this store and obviously his parents are like really poor his mother's really poor because they're moving in with grandpa and he says you know you're the only woman i ever knew who got poorer in a divorce so he goes to this comic book store And he says he's looking for the other three Batman number 14s. If there's only four Batman 14s in existence, shouldn't he just sell it to buy his mother a house or two? You think? Yeah, there's no way, even if there's a hundred Batman number 14s out there, that thing's old. 
And there's no way this kid's going to be able to afford it. If he could afford that, he could buy groceries for a couple of months for his family. And how the hell did he know before the internet? <laughs> Maybe that's why, because this is not true. There are more than four copies of Batman number 14. So before the internet, we know with things like Wikipedia and, and message boards, a lot of false ideas have been eradicated with the internet. We all know that, right? There's nothing but truth uh, spread throughout the internet these days. But before those times... Journal of the Wills. Yes. There, there's a lot of miscommunication. So maybe he, he read it off some old San Diego Comic Con newsletter <laughs> that there's only four in existence. Back when they were running those for the mimeograph. <laughs> and around the same time, we finally get introduced to our lost boys of vampires, Kiefer Sutherland et al. And... I don't know. I think I really kind of wanted to be one of the Lost Boys as a kid. I wanted the motorcycle. I wanted the leather jacket. I wanted the mullets. You wanted to be them. I wanted to date them. Well, this worked out well for us. Yeah, it it really did. (laughs) No, but, uh, you know, even watching this again, because I'm newer to this franchise. Yeah, this thing is so 80s, but it's authentic 80s. You watch like The Wedding Singer. And they're trying to do the whole 80s thing, but it looks like a modern movie trying to do the 80s thing. This is authentic, so I I, I think that appeal is still even there. Yeah, they all have their big poison and rat hair <laughs> in this film, but that's how it was, man. There, there was times where I thought I was watching, like, a poison video, like, when we get into that, like, sex scene and stuff because of the hair and the way things are shot. But it's authentic, and so I think that's part of the, the appeal of how they look. They do look badass, even though it's badass in an 80s kind of way. They were very badass. And see, all I knew at that time, I didn't know this heavy metal stuff. And so they were badass heavy metal guys. I have one question about the fashion. This this question has bugged me for 23 years, Jacob, as okay. you're our 80s fashion expert, apparently. <laughs> apparently. I, I wasn't aware of that, but let's go for it. Were Civil War coats big in 1987? Because why is Laddie wearing what looks like a Civil War general <laughs> double-breasted coat? Because <laughs> they shop at the Goodwill. Yeah, that costume choice confused me. I'm like, oh, is this some vampire from the 1800s that they found <laughs> lurking somewhere? I mean, even stars dress, very 80s heavy metal, but it, it still kind of seemed almost Victorian era, too. It was very nouveau hippies, is what it was. Yeah, yeah. And I think Laddie was supposed to be more of a romantic vagabond. Perhaps they're, yeah, maybe they're going for that men at work look or something. The, the <laughs> yeah. Well, Are I mean, you talking about the band or the Charlie Sheen Emilio Estevez <laughs> movie? Definitely the band. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always thought that they were supposed to be dressed like fancy bums. Because, you know, you see the bums and they're wearing like the crappy ass clothes and then... You know, they're wearing nice clothes, so maybe they're bummed you can talk to. Obviously, we, the audience, know they're vampires. They make a couple of kills of people in the parking lot of the boardwalk. Can I just say, I've always been a fan with horror monster movies where you don't show the monster. You don't show whatever the big reveal is right away. I like the anticipation and the buildup. So I really like to get this kill of the security guard at the beginning of the film. All you see him, he walks to his car, something swoops down. You don't know. You don't see anything swooping down. You just see him ripped up into the air so forcibly he rips the door off his car. You see another scene where a a teenage couple making out and reading comic books for some reason. Well, that's uh, what we do. Don't you do that? I don't do both because I don't want to ruin the mint condition of my comic books or anything that might happen because I'm making love. But they're making out and you see the, the top of this car ripped off and they're snatched up into the air. Even though I knew this was a vampire movie going in, I like that if you have no idea what this movie is, 
like you're like, dude, is there a monster in this city? Is that why there's all these missing and dead children? What I, I like how they build up to the idea of the vampires. I also really like that. And, you know, sometimes they say genius is born out of hardship. And the simple fact is they probably couldn't afford to show these people flying like that. Well, when we do see them flying, I, I'm glad they didn't show more of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when Jason Patrick is like, parasailing out of the wind inside the window there you, know, you can practically see the wires but yeah i always thought it was cool how they were able to rip top off the car and the, when taking the security guard it rips the door off the hinges and I'm like that security guard had one hell of a grip on that door <laughs> up until this i have to say this was probably one of my first introductions to vampires outside of seeing them on various TV shows and maybe Dracula, I had always thought you converted somebody to being a vampire by biting them. My big exposure to vampire pre-Lost Boys was Love at First Bite, the George <laughs> Hamilton movie, that, and where it was three bites to turn the woman into a vampire. And that was my knowledge of vampire movies was Love at First Bite and Dracula. I guess here, Kiefer gives Jason Patrick blood, blood. to drink. Hit. His blood, yes. No, Max's blood. Max's blood, yeah. The master vampire. Spoiler, sorry. Every movie, every story, they're going to play with the mythology. I, I think there's certain lines you don't cross. I'm talking to you, Twilight. Um, <laughs> and the, the sunlight. Yeah. The, the sunlight. How do you become yeah. a vampire in Twilight? You get bit. Oh, okay. But But here's the thing. This is what's always confused me. And maybe I'm not a huge vampire mythology buff, but... It would seem like with the women, they would get bit and they'd turn into female vampires. But with men, they would just drink all their blood and die. There's always been some playing with it where sometimes you die if you get bit by a vampire. Sometimes you turn into a vampire if you get bit. Uh, so I didn't mind that they introduced this idea of half vampires where you had to commit your first kill to become a full vampire. You know, it's, it's kind of like initiation to a gang. 87, California gangs. I, I thought it was a pretty cool idea you know, bringing in this uh, gang initiation thing into it. I kind of liked it. I mean, I, I really go with it. And nowadays I see a lot more of the you have to drink the vampire's blood, their true blood and interview with a vampire both have the kind of it's mutual. You feed off each other to convert and it's a huge process. I also want to know, is it a normal vampire power to make? I couldn't tell. Was Kiefer making the food look like worms or making the worms look like food? He was making the food look like maggots and it was a trick he was playing it was to break down michael's defenses when they handed him the blood because star yells out it's blood don't drink and he's like oh yeah whatever i i thought i was eating maggots and worms and th that wasn't and there's just something wrong with my mind right now i i don't know if that again i don't know if that's a, a common thing in vampire lore that they could kind of mess with your senses but I bought it here. It I never questioned had, it. Have a I, negative effect on. Yeah, it, I didn't have. It didn't have a negative effect on me. No, I have never questioned it and never really thought hard about it. Now until like the last five minutes with talking with you two, <laughs> but I just thought that was normally what you do. I mean, I always wonder about the scope of their power and how they were able to pull that off. Yeah, because well, see, here's the thing: it's very sexy in the Lost Boys for them to do it. You drinking the wine? It's very. I don't know what. It's just. It's very oddly cool and romantic they've always vampires have always had this power of seduction yeah they, they do are. yeah and, and, and so i think I, I think that's where this idea comes from is they can mess with your senses that, that's where they get this power to seduce you they know what's going to appeal to you they know what you fear and what you love the only other movie i've seen with vampires is interview interview with the vampire and it's very gay 
because it's about a love affair between Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise. Well, you know, this kind of hits my point here is seduction. When I watched this and I was 13 years old, I kind of thought that Michael was getting in between David and Star. Like David and Star were kind of an item and Michael was, it was No, I thought he just couldn't be with a mortal. He... I meant Star couldn't be with a mortal. Michael's trying to get with Star, but I kind of see this time it's like... David is trying to seduce Michael, to, to seduce him to the dark side, seduce him to vampirism, seduce him however you want to say it. But he's like, Michael, come back to my lair. Drink wine. Have some Jesus, Jesus juice. juice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was one of the weaknesses of this film is I don't quite get the motivation of how they decide who to eat and who to kill as vampires and who to turn to the vampire side. There's no clear distinction, I felt. So, you know, when when you I, I agree, there is this weird sexual tension because when Michael starts hitting on Star, David, he, you know, obviously doesn't like that, but he kind of goads him on and pushes him on. Let's, you know, let's go play chicken on a cliff with our motorcycles and instead of just straight up killing him. He lures, you know, brings him into the lair and feeds him the blood, turns him into a half vampire. Maybe psychologically he knew that would destroy him even more or something i don't know there's not a real clear motivation what who they convert and who they just eat there's not the clear motivation but there was a definite reason why they picked michael i had the same complaint you did jacob when watching this is i was sitting there like why are they picking michael if anything you know it seems like that would be kind of an alpha dog fight but it's revealed at the end it's max who tells david bring michael into the fold that that's true and and I was kind of unclear on that whole motivation about creating a vampire Brady Bunch as well. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to get with Diane Weiss, the Dodge guy. and Yeah, he you know. the why, lost boys Why not just feed her some blood mom. when they go to dinner? You would think that would be easier, but then it wouldn't be a very good movie. But but then he wants to bite her, which does that turn her into a full vampire instead of about a half vampire? I it's don't called know. foreplay. There, it, <laughs> yes, it, it, there, there's some things that are muddled. It's not the clearest storytelling if you start really thinking about it. I actually think it's perfectly clear. Max wanted a partnership in eternity, picked Diane Weist because she had short hair. Maybe, yeah. Well, knows? that's the thing. If he's been living in Santa Carla for, like, ever since he's the master vampire, like, he just found – I mean, he's not the most attractive guy, Max. So maybe he had to wait for, uh, you know – Diane Weist. Uh, Diane Weist to show up. She's not maybe exactly that's... a 10. Yeah. So, you know, and she was willing to take a, a crappy job in his VHS rental shop, which had an adult section, if you notice. Yeah. Well, they all did back then. <laughs> it's very authentic to the times. He wanted her. And so he thought that by bringing the children over, she'd come willingly. I mean, I didn't get the impression that it's like in Buffy, where when you become a vampire, a demon inhabits you and you now are immediately evil. Jason Patrick became half vampire and he still was fighting against the others. So I think he needed her to come willingly in order to be the mother to his brood. But why? Because he was lonely. Well, I understand. But vampires could still do regular women. Yeah, but he wanted uh, he 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 was tired of the dating scene and all the you know he was ready to settle down. Yes. <laughs> However, I don't get why Max gets such a great bachelor pad, and the Lost Boys have to live in that underground hotel because they're the children. You don't give you know the the parents get the nice stuff. And and you know what? If I'm a teenager, dude, living in like a trashed hotel. Like, that would be awesome. That would be my dream as, like, a punk rock teenager. 
like squatting in some just destroyed place, that would be awesome to me. Yeah, but the reality is that, you know, a trash hotel ends up looking like the house from Fight Club and not really like this abandoned hotel in <laughs> The Lost Boys. So in that hotel, Michael and Star have sex, I think. They certainly pose a lot. <laughs> I mean, that is like the most. Well, you, you know, they, they cut to the flying sequences and dreams about flying are often associated with sexual desire. Even though this is R rated, it, it's still a very teenage way to express they were having sex. I can't believe this got an R rating, but this was in the 80s when everybody was backlashing against horror. You don't even see a nipple in this movie. No. no, there's no nudity. I mean, it's it's R because of the gore at the end of the film. I didn't believe him that it was rated R either. Because <laughs> I'm like, it's yeah. not even that gory. Well, there's also the scene where they kill the surfers and scalp one of them. And that's kind of a cool scene. The, all the blood there. This isn't how teenagers have sex. No, it, it was a poison video. It, it's totally, I thought of like some glam rock metal video during this whole thing. It was very MTV heavy metal video to me. It, it was not... Teenage sex. I'm not going to go into my experience with teenage sex, but I'm just going to say this was not teenage sex. We were talking a minute ago about the surf Nazi scene, and that is like the big reveal. We get to see our vampires for the first time. What do you guys think of that? Now, I've heard maybe I don't know if you remember, Arnie, but I guess there's there's more about the surf Nazis in the novelization. Does it ever call them surf Nazis in the movie? I was like reading stuff online and it keeps referring to them as surf Nazis. And, and there's movies like Surf Nazis Must Die. I don't know if it was, a, you know, there was some reference to that or. Well, I said Surf Nazis when they came on the screen. And he goes, they're called Surf Nazis. But then when we were watching the credits, it says Surf Nazis in the credits. Okay. And you're asking me about a book that I read 23 years ago and have since seen a movie of about 100 times. So I don't remember too much about. The <laughs> hey, but wait a second. In all fairness, though, you remember weird things. Yeah. So did you guys notice when. The Lost Boys are showing Michael the surfers who they're about to eat. The Lost Boys are all in this tree, and it's a really tiny tree. <laughs> they're like a foot off the ground. They're like, like well, in a bush, Arnie. Yeah, it's a it's bush, almost not a, tree. a bush. Why were they in that? Yeah, I, I, I thought that was weird. One, because there's not a lot of trees on the beach. It's not, a you know, sand doesn't make the best soil to grow plants, especially big, large trees. I thought it was weird. You know, at first I thought they were in a big tree, but they're not. It, like you said, it is a bush. You talked about the gore, the ripping off of the, the scalp where the brains are exposed. I liked it. You know, it's the first time you see the fangs. You get to see uh, Michael, you know, struggling not to give in to his vampiric urges. It showed how dangerous they really were before they just had the bad boy image. And now you see how dangerous they really are as vampires. I thought it was an effective scene. I thought it was really good, and it kind of added the scary element to the movie, which it was kind of lacking before because you didn't see it. I wish there were more scenes like that. Not that I wish it were gorier, but it just it seemed to lack if it was a horror slash comedy. It had some comedy, which was your Corey Haim and Grandpa, but it didn't really have enough to make you go, oh, crap, vampires. You know, they were fun vampires for a while, just kind of riding their bikes and being bad boys and then you get this and they should have had more of this i think like i said i like that it builds up to this this is a, a classic you know if you're talking about a franchise this is a classic you know first movie where you got to build up to it yeah i would have liked to see them you know because you go from this to a couple of scenes later now the frog brothers and uh 
Corey Aim, they're they're teaming up to go kill all the vampires, and they don't. It, it's it's like Star Wars. You see Darth Vader kill some rebels at the beginning of the first film, and then he never kills any good guys again for the rest of the series. He kills you know some of his commanders and stuff. You want once you get the reveal how evil you know these vampires are, you do want to see more of it. I would have liked a few more scenes. Even if they would just have been for gratuitous gore and violence. I don't know. I actually think we saw enough. I wouldn't have wanted this plot to slow down at that point. Yeah, but you could have cut out scenes like Sam in the bathtub singing to oldies. But Sam in the bathtub singing the oldies is when Michael is starting to vamp out a little bit and is going to feed on him. And there's that suspense. You see them killed twice before this. There's the security guard and then there's the couple in the car. And then there's the surf guy. So this is the third set of kills. They feed pretty regularly. This is the first time you know it's them. Yeah. Because the, the first two were kind of teasers. Kind of, uh, is there some monster in this city? You know, you don't really know what's going on. This is the first time it's revealed. And I, I, I'm not saying I want like 30 more minutes of them killing people. I Maybe in, in one more scene. I love the music in this. This was my first introduction to rap music ever. Was rap? Hearing Walk This Way by Run oh. DMC. I was surprised when I heard that playing during that. Uh, you know, I never Nazi. noticed it's, it. It's surf Nazis. Why are you listening to rap? <laughs> yeah, it should have been Chili Peppers for California in 87 yes. on the beach. <laughs> yeah, it did have a very diverse soundtrack. What did you guys think about the makeup? In, in my gluttony for all things Lost Boys to prepare for this podcast, I found out that, again, Schumacher was very interested in making sure that he hired attractive people. And then when you put the makeup on them. They didn't become unattractive, and he fired a makeup guy because he was making them ugly. No, I thought it was pretty good because it wasn't so obtrusive that you're like, holy crap. It was a nice, not quite subtle change, I thought, but it wasn't bad. It wasn't good. It wasn't like, oh my god, that's fantastic makeup, but I think it was just enough to show that they were different when they're in this mode. Although I don't know if that's necessary, is it? When a vampire lore, do you have to change? Does it your your parents change when you feed, it, it, or when you vamp out? Again, in my George Hamilton <laughs> knowledge, <laughs> I thought you just were always a vampire and you had pokey teeth and pokey teeth. <laughs> you had fangs. Yeah, I, I think the idea that you change is a more modern one. With the makeup, I, I liked. I liked how the actual Lost Boys looked. I, 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 it makes sense that Schumacher, you know, when you say he wanted them to retain their good looks, I think they are pretty successful there. I thought the makeup for Max, I thought he just looked weird when he was all vamped out. He did. Like, His he, face was really strange. You know what he looked like was Scott Valentine from My Demon Lover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, him and then, what's the little boy's name? Laddie. 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 Him and Laddie. Laddie had a weird look, too, when he vamped out at the end. And, and those two, it, it just seemed kind of weird. Uh, maybe they're trying to make him look more sinister. I mean, Laddie kind of struck me as Leprechaun for some reason. <laughs> the, the only person they didn't vamp out was Star. No, they never vamped out a woman. Uh-uh. What I also found interesting, speaking of weird makeup, when Michael vamps out, I kind of think he looks a little bit feline. Like like a lion like Dude, in the I face. I I thought Michael Jackson in Thriller when he starts yes, turning into yes. a werewolf. Yeah, totally. Because like there's something about the way they the, – what they did with his face I gave it that look. Yeah, and also his hair. He had such big hair that framed his face. <laughs> his like mane. A, yes, exactly. <laughs> and they, they kind of played up the cheekbones that kind of gave him feline lines in it and the mane and everything. I'm like, yeah. 
You, you know, the the other piece of makeup that I liked in this film, it's when, you know, the Frog Brothers and uh, it's when the Frog Brothers and Sam, they go into this deep cavern to find the Lost Boys to kill them. And they're looking for coffins. And they're like, where's the coffins? They're supposed to be sleeping in coffins. And they look up and the Lost Boys, they're all hanging there like bats. And it shows their feet. And like they morphed into like kind of these bat feet so they could hang on to uh, the cavern ceiling and hang there. I, I liked that. I'm like, how are they hanging there with their toes? They got really long toenails that are curled around there. I, I like that they actually showed their feet and their feet kind of morphed, you know, because, you know, we talked about transformation. One of the classic trans- transformations of vampires, it, 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 the classic ones, is that they turn into bats. So it's not that they their faces change when they turn evil, but they have that power to turn into bats and fly around. So I, I like that they kind of played on that mythology as well, where they're hanging upside down. Do they do that in Twilight too? <laughs> I, I'm going to say my, I'm going to say my thoughts on Twilight for our Twilight retrospective, which you because will be doing I have, without me. I, cause I have seen the first one, uh, but no Twilight. Here's, here's the thing. And I think it's appropriate with lost boys. When you're dealing with these classic monsters, you know, Frankenstein's monsters, werewolves, vampires, whatever. There's a mythology behind them. Zombies, too. And I I like a certain respect to the mythology. Yes, you could play around with the mythology. There's the reveal in this film. Uh, you know, they show the one vampire when the vampires invade the home at the end. The Frog Brothers, they, they reveal this bathtub that's full of holy water and garlic. And the vampire's like, you know, garlic doesn't work on us. Cool. You know, that, that's cool. You can have these little twists. Oh, this mythology. You know, uh, Monster Squad did the same thing where you find out that some of these old myths, they're, they're, that's what they are. They're just myths. You can't really kill, you know, a werewolf with a silver bullet, things like that. I, I don't mind that as long as you acknowledge it, that you acknowledge that there's hundreds of years of mythology. And if you're going to play with that, cool, fine. Let us know as an audience that you understand what our expectations are. So when you get into Twilight, and you get into some of their new vampire mythology, it's not explained. It's not that there's a recognition of hundreds of years. It's just like, yeah, vampires are cool. They could go in the sun. They just glow a little. They 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 sparkle. You know, you, you so you never see them uh, sleeping in coffins or morphing into bats or or their faces morphing. They just have the big teeth, more like the classic vampires. But when you're dealing with these these classic monsters, I. I guess I'm a traditionalist, you could say. I, I I like that they have certain weaknesses. It's like, you know, there's no fun in watching a Superman movie if you pretend that kryptonite doesn't really work on him, like what happened with Superman Returns. He could have a piece of kryptonite shoved in him and still lift up an entire continent. That bugs me. There's got to be the weaknesses. There's got to be, you know, some some nods to tradition, I feel, in these kinds of movies. And I think the Lost Boys, they play with the tradition, they play with the mythology, but they also show a respect for it, and they keep the core elements there. But yet, for the half-vampires, they still don't like the sun, but it doesn't catch them on fire. It just seems to make them incredibly sleepy. Yeah, they, they have to wear the sunglasses and, you know, put a sheet over their head or something. Again, I like that. There, there's this transformation stage going on. There's this struggle where it, it's a way to let people know in the film that, hey, something's not quite right. When, you know, Sam uh, sees Michael, he's laying in bed till two in the afternoon and he opens the window and Michael grabs the sunglasses. You know, it starts giving those hints to the characters in the film that, hey, maybe something's not right. So I didn't mind. Again, this idea of half vampires, I don't know where that comes from. 
So I, I was willing to play around where you could see this gradual transformation in them. I kind of thought the makeup looked a little plasticky was the only my only complaint about it. So then the Frog Brothers get the Surf Nazis revenge. They go to the lair of the vampires and kill poor Alexander Winter. I love that scene, though. I really like it with the whole car and all the one liners. This is when, you know, the movie really starts to kick into high gear. Yeah, I like the fact that, you know, you guys have seen Stand By Me. Oh, yes. Many, many okay. times. When they kill Alex Winters, I'm thinking of the bar for Rama. They, they stab <laughs> him through the heart with a stake, and that guy spurs enough blood to keep about a dozen people alive. It just keeps <laughs> shooting out. You know, I really love B-movie type by, uh, gore like that, where it, it's, it's obviously not realistic, but it's just so over the top, it's fun. I love the fact that they were... They only killed him, and they weren't prepared for the rest of them. And it was very childlike, I thought. And I, I thought that really portrayed their young and innocence, that they thought they could just go in with one stake and knock them all out, and they get one, and then they flip out, and they're running like hell to get out. I just wonder, why did they pick Alex Winter to be the the lead vampire? It, it's because you know, his hair is crimped, and that mullet has to go. First come, first staked. Yeah. Kiefer's obviously the leader of the gang. They've done some, but he's prettier. <laughs> th- that's true. I mean, they got they got to move the story along. I just yeah. thought that was a weird choice to go after one of the B list uh, Lost Boys. I got the impression from the their dialogue when they're leaving that they didn't expect the vampires to wake up. They thought it would be like in the old Dracula. Because if you've ever seen like the old Dracula, they'll open the coffin and Dracula's laying there, and they'll have a big conversation while Dracula's like in the middle. And then they'll just like line up the stake over the heart real carefully and Dracula's out of it. And then they start banging and then Dracula finally wakes up. So I I think they thought that the vampires would just stay there completely unconscious while they staked them all. Yeah, and they they were definitely surprised. They were surprised they weren't in coffins, that they were hanging from the the roof. So they knew their comic books weren't 100% accurate. And I think that really, again, portrayed their stupidness and innocence and youth they were all prepared had everything ready to go and they get in there and it is nothing at all like they expected it to be yeah because after all these are like young you know 12 13 14 maybe year old kids going to kill people so i like the fact that that they actually are kind of shocked by the violence of sticking someone and paling them with a stake but are they really killing them if they're already dead vampire philosophy (laughs) The, the deep thoughts although i had to laugh at Kiefer Sutherland's response line, he opens his eyes, he sees his friend of who knows how many hundreds of years, or maybe just a few days, we don't know, killed, and he looks at them and screams, you're dead meat! And I'm like, oh my god, that's such an 80s threat. I remember saying that all the time as a kid. Yes, as a kid. To my little brother, you're you're dead meat, man. Yeah, you'd say that when you're like a a little kid, but you don't say that if you're actually going to kill somebody. But to, vampires aren't we all just meat bags? I, I think there's a level of, you know, th- there's layers there. This is when, however, one thing that really bothers me about this film starts screaming. The rest of this entire movie is shouted at me. They <laughs> they scream when they stake the vampire. If it's too loud, you're too old. They scream back at the house. It's constant screaming, and it's mostly Haim. <laughs> With that very shrill, not quite you know, hip puberty. You know, you said he was like 14 or 15. It's like his voice hadn't changed yet. No, no. Although it would always God knows that pitch. Corey Feldman's changed. Thank you very much. <laughs> Maybe that's why Corey Feldman speaks like th- that. 
in this movie. Maybe he was going through the voice change and they didn't want the constant cracking of the voice like Peter Brady. So can you explain <laughs> so why like, he still talks like that? <laughs> I, I He doesn't now. I'm just saying maybe they gave him direction to talk like a man. And that was his impression. So we get to the final fight, the vampires versus the frog brothers. And yeah, this whole scene rocks, doesn't it? It's such a mixture of action and humor. I think Arnold Schwarzenegger was jealous that he didn't get some of those lines, like the attack of Eddie Munster. (laughs) And again, I love just the over the top gore in this final scene. I mean, it's it was gratuitous. The scene where they stick the vampire in the bathtub full of holy water. First of all, you you get, you know, he starts melting. You get this great skeleton with the vampire teeth that pops up out of the tub. And then for whatever reason, I, I guess when vampire pulp gets into your drainage, it causes everything to explode. So you get the entire kitchen is just blowing up with like vampire guts through the pipes. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's awesome and a ton of fun. I, I love that kind of over the top gore. It was just gore for gore and it was fun. Yeah, and it was the first of some great, I mean, this movie, you hinted at it earlier, there's some great kills Mm -hmm. in this movie. You get the guy, you know, Corey Haim, apparently uh, a bit of an archer on the side, starts shooting arrows at a vampire. One goes through the vampire, you know, pushes him back, hits him on the stereo. Uh, The stereo, you know, electrocutes the vampire as he's got the stake through him. You get the great line, death by stereo. You know, if I'm going to watch a horror, and, you know, I first came on and now playing with the Saw series. And I'm not a huge horror fan, but if I'm going to watch these kind of movies, I want to see good kills. I, I think that's, in you know, listening to your like Nightmare on Elm Street shows, that, that was one of the big things. Are the kills fun? Are they new? Do they come up with, you know, is it fun to watch someone die? It sounds weird to want to see that in a film, but I want to see some nice inventive kills and re-get those in this, especially in this last scene. And of course, Feldman sets it all up because... Here at now nitpicking, I would be like, well, why did he explode and he implode? But Feldman sets it all up. No two vampires die the same. Some explode, some implode. It was it was great. It sets it all up so we could just have this raucous whatever the fuck they want to do, they do. It was yeah. vampire killing melee. I do have one question because going back to vampire lore, a vampire cannot come into your house unless it is invited. And that plays a big part with Max, why he wasn't able to be detected as a vampire earlier on in the movie, because he was invited into the home. My question is, all these vampires just kind of forced their way into the house. Was that because the master vampire was already invited? Is that a free-for-all for all other vampires? I think they were fucking with the mythology again a little bit. Like you said, they put their own twist on it. Because I was wondering why in that scene earlier when the Frog Brothers and Sam were putting Max through all those tests and feeding him garlic and showing him the mirror and throwing holy water at him and nothing hurts him. And I was wondering why. And then at the end of the movie, he goes, you don't invite a vampire into your house. It renders you powerless. Yeah, that that was something that hit me as new, too. I, I was wondering about that. So the vampire could always come in. And it's not like in Buffy. In Buffy, they made this big deal that once you invite a vampire in, they have carte blanche to show up whenever they want and you're kind of screwed. But here, it seemed like every time the vampire had to be invited, they can still come in. But it's a question of if you're powerless, because Michael goes, I didn't invite you this time, Max. I'm sorry, that was my Feldman voice, not my demon (laughs) Michael voice. But anyway, Michael says that, and then Max is able to be killed. But if you invite them in, apparently 
if a vampire wants to do his hair and wants to crimp his mullet, <laughs> you have to invite them in so he can see himself in a mirror. <gasps> but okay, that that explanation actually makes a lot of sense. That that was the one thing that confused me because they do play with the mythology here, and it's not. The best explain, but that that actually makes a lot of sense. Can I tell you that every single time I've seen this movie, which has been a lot in the years since it's been released, because it's a good movie, I've never once questioned the mythology of the vampires. I just went with it. Maybe I'm just a geek that way because I like mythology. I, uh, so that kind of stuff bugs me. I, I'm sure there's a lot of people. There's there's millions of 14 year old girls and 40 year old women who don't mind throwing their G strings at Robert Pattinson <laughs> that don't care about the mythology. They're able to get past that. Here's the thing. I didn't care about the mythology of Lost Boys until it became a series. And then I started looking at what the rules were to see if they were followed. I watched this movie for 20 years and never started to question the stuff. I just went with the movie because it's a very fun movie. But as soon as you franchise something, it starts making sequels. And so I was really, because of now playing, I wanted to see how the second one followed the rules. I was really trying to get a bead on where these vampires were. And I do know from my reading and watching of the cutscenes, they put a lot more old school vampire lore in the book and in the script than's actually in the movie. Something about the vampires can't cross running water. Yeah. And yeah. and vampires have salt stick to their skin. So what you're telling me is if you suddenly become a vampire, you have a lot of rules to learn. And this sounds like a big hassle. Why would you be a vampire? Well, it's like gremlins. You can't feed them after midnight. Yeah, this is like there, way too a, much trouble. Well, you, you need to see the movie My Best Friend is a Vampire, where the main character becomes a vampire and Rene Arbajonis from Benson and Deep Space Nine shows up and gives him a big book and says, here's the rules. <laughs> It's a giant manual, and the whole joke of the movie is he didn't read it. He's like this Ralph is... from Greatest American Hero. Well, that's like Beetlejuice, where they get their Book of the Dead to learn how to be dead. So the fight between David and Michael, I love that fight. I think those two, I mean— Besides the bad blue screen when they fly up in the air to fight each other. Yeah. 1987, definitely. You can't think too hard about this kind of stuff. It, it just sticks out, like, because I was newer to this series, having seen it only about six months ago for the first time. It's something that jumped out at me pretty hardcore. It made me giggle. It doesn't It doesn't ruin the film for me. It just says, hey, this is 1987. I wouldn't exactly say Kiefer is a grand actor. In watching some of these special features, they're like, and Kiefer went on to do such great things. Like 24 in a prison sentence. I mean, <laughs> it, not a ton there, but I think he did well. Jason Patrick, again, I don't think he went on to great things if you consider Speed 2 one of them. <laughs> but he did have a couple of movies where he was acclaimed. But I think together these two really pull off a scene and make it, God forbid I say, powerful to have these two finally go up against each other. But what, what strikes me the most watching it is they set up the taxidermy so early in the movie and yet it actually becomes a weapon at the end in that David is impaled on the horns. How great is that, that this whole taxidermy subplot pays off? Yeah, I was kind of expecting it because you keep getting these scenes where Grandpa brings up like a stuffed badger, a stuffed owl to Sam's room. I'm like, are, because you kind of get the sense that Grandpa knows something. I'm like, are those supposed to be totems that, you know, keep vampires away? I'm like, why? You know, and I think it's just there to keep reminding you, hey, this guy stuffs animals. So when you get this room full of skeletons, it makes more sense. And I thought it was a great kill that death by taxidermy. You get death by radio. You get death by bathtub. You get death by taxidermy. Great kills in this film. 
Jacob, you saw the movie originally recently. Marjorie, you saw it back in the 80s, oh, as yeah. did I. I can say definitively, I didn't see the twist coming. I thought when David was killed, David was the head vampire. Did either of you guess the twist? Because there are hints dropped. If you watch the movie and look for Max's scenes, there's several scenes that drop hints that Max has What are the hints? Because I never saw it. Well, there's the scene where Max is home alone with his dog, and the motorcycles come and you see Max facing the motorcycles and then you never know what happened from that. And when you see Max is alive and well, then you know they didn't kill him. So what was going on there? There's the scene where Diane Weist goes to visit him during the day oh, and his and dog. dog attacks. There, It's set up very well, but I didn't catch it on a first viewing and I don't know that I ever would catch it on a first viewing. It's something that definitely... They're very subtle. It, it pays off with multiple viewings. Yeah, I, I, I didn't get it the first time because the whole scene where the Frog Brothers put him through the test, I'm like, oh, that would have detected him unless they come up with some huge cheat. And I, I think the reason, you know, we've already discussed the reason he's able to pass the test. They came up with some huge cheat. Yes. <laughs> I bought it. That's the thing. I bought it. Yeah. So it does catch you off guard. I, I knew there was going to be a twist. I knew Kiefer wasn't the master vampire. I, I thought maybe it's grandpa. That's why he's acting so weird. I knew there had to be one more. I was surprised when it was Max. You never suspect the, the innocent VHS rental store. <laughs> no, it's, Great. And again, it's one of those things that I never noticed the clues the first time watching it, but you know, I never thought about the motorcycles, but I knew the dog. And there's a couple of times when like he tells them to not come to the back to the store. And if you think of it initially, you think he's just another one of the people on the boardwalk who they harass. But then you see it again and he's like, don't come visit me at work. People are going to suspect. Yeah. When I watched this most recently to prepare for this podcast, you definitely start seeing if you're looking for him. There's definitely a lot of hints that Max is the master vampire that I picked up the second time watching. I just want to talk about grandpa's last line. This is what makes me love grandpa is this final line. He backs his truck, and there's a scene earlier where he's putting these wooden fence posts uh, around his home. And you get this final scene. Max is the final vampire, the master vampire. Grandpa was supposedly off on a date. He backs his truck through his own home. One of these wooden stake fence posts flies off the back of his truck and impales Max. Grandpa then walks past everyone, like totally nonchalantly walks into the kitchen, covered in vampire blood, pulls out a beer and says, one thing in Santa Carla I can never stomach, all the damn vampires. Like that right there. It, first of all, it's a great <laughs> line to close the movie on. And then you go into people are strange. Just a great transition. But it makes me want to know more about Grandpa. Like, I, I started that off saying I wanted to know more about him because the way this film ends, he knows there's vampires. He knows how to kill him. He, you know, he knows it's a problem. What's his deal? I want the grandpa sequel to The Lost Boy. Or I want the grandpa prequel to The Lost Boys. That would be an interesting thing. I'd actually, I would really go for that if they, like, went back and did something with 60s California beach culture and, you know, hippies and all of that in Santa Carla. That could really work. I would I would be down for the grandpa story. I have a feeling that's not the way the series is going to go. No, I don't think that's what we're seeing at Comic-Con. <laughs> That'd be a big shock if it was, wouldn't it? <laughs> so Marjorie, Jacob, do you recommend The Lost Boys? I do, absolutely, wholeheartedly. You have to see this movie. It is awesome, and it doesn't matter what age you are, or if you grew up in the 80s or the 90s, it is a fun movie. 
A lot of people don't know the legend of the Corys, but that's okay. I'm not a really big fan of them, but it's part of the 80s. I recommend, absolutely. I also recommend this film. You know, we, we talked a lot about its 80-ness. And, and as I've been doing these now playing shows, I've realized, like, I'm in this different generation where there's a certain aesthetic. That, you know, movies in the 80s don't bother me like they do with younger people. This is a great period piece. If, if you don't like 80s film, approach this as a period piece because there's so much authenticity in it that I, I enjoy that level of detail. You know, the costumes, the cinematography. You don't, you know, going back to Karate Kid, that's what surprised me with that film a lot, too, is that you don't expect that kind of depth in these movies. You know, this is a horror comedy. You don't expect great cinematography in a horror comedy. I love the mashup of the genres. You know, Ghostbusters is one of my favorite movie, similar horror comedy type thing, much more of a comedy than a horror. But I like that mixing of the genres. You know, I understand why this is such a cult classic. I, I, you know, I think this did moderately at the box office, but it's a huge cult film and I totally understand why. You know, this reminded me a lot of Mad Max and I feel kind of dirty bringing up a Mel Gibson movie with the current news going on. But Mad Max, it's, it's this flawed film with storytelling there's aspects that aren't perfect just like with lost boys but the passion just just some of the the visuals and and the way they go about it 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 overcomes those flaws you get moved past them i talked about some of the bad blue screen it's a you know it made me chuckle it it jumped out at me but it doesn't ruin the film you know i'm not going to take a point off because of that it's one of the charms this is a fun film I'm not a big horror fan, but I love the gore in this. I love the, the violent. I thought it worked as a horror film. So I definitely recommend Lost Boys. And I'm going to make it three for three recommending the Lost Boys. It is funny. It is fun. It is not scary, but it's got some good action. I stand by what I said earlier that a lot of the humor now is unintentional. And it's, oh, my God, look at the clothes. Oh, my God, look at the hair. Whereas back then, it's like, man, that's some cool clothes and cool hair. I wish I could be that cool. But beyond that, even though I really do hate Joel Schumacher, I have to give him credit because this movie wouldn't be what it was if it wasn't for him coming in saying the vampires need to be sexy and the vampires need to be older. And everything he brought to this movie worked is it a perfect movie no not by any means but it's a very fun movie and it's got a lot of things going for it that make it better than your average vampire flick so yeah if you haven't seen the lost boys check it out if you have seen it check it out again it really holds up much better than you think it would you can buy it for five bucks on dvd at target not expensive you got the blu-ray really cheap didn't you i got the blu-ray for nine on amazon (laughs) there you go The studios don't even understand the power of this film. They're underselling it. But they understand the power of the next one because it's $30 on Blu-ray at Amazon. Holy moly. We'll be back next time. Having just watched that. To see apparently the three times as good, The Lost Boys 2, The Tribe. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you can download more of our podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. We have quite a horror retrospective series there we've done the saw films halloween house of a thousand corpses friday the 13th nightmare on elm street we've also done some non-horror films back to the future terminator star trek predators you can find it all at nowplayingpodcast.com and if you've enjoyed this podcast please support now playing help keep us podcasting into the future 
by donating a little bit of your money. Spend $5 on the Lost Boys DVD and spend $5 donating to Now Playing. If you go to our webpage, scroll down to the bottom, there's a donate button. We really appreciate all the support of our listeners that we've gotten so far. And it helps us cover the cost of making this show and seeing these movies. And while you're at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can visit our forums and discuss our podcast with other listeners. You can also suggest movies you'd like to see us review. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where most all of the Now Playing hosts do short movie reviews of movies we see on television or in theaters. So Marjorie, Jacob, thank you for joining me. Thank you. We will be back with The Tribe. One thing about living in Santa Carla, I never could stomach all the damn vampires. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's The Lost Boys Retrospective Series. Build a man a fire, and he's warm for a day. Light a man on fire, and he's warm for the rest of his life. Be sure to head to our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, and listen to our other movie series reviews, including A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Halloween, Terminator, and more. I went to the website, filled out a couple forms, and clicked ordain me. If you enjoy Now Playing, please support the show. You can find a link to donate to the show using PayPal from our homepage, or you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more at the Now Playing Cafe Press store. How much do you think we should charge him for this? Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find a link to our forums where you can discuss these films, as well as links to our Facebook and Twitter pages, where you can read our movie mini-reviews and chat with other listeners about the show. Just like one big happy family. The Lost Boys and all the Lost Boys universe contains is the intellectual property of Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. Even though you're a vampire, you're still my brother. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2010. Death by Stereo. I had never heard any song by the doors. What? And when really? this when this movie I was big into it, I'm like, I love this song. I love this song. I'd never heard it before. And I was talking to Stuart, who co-hosts, and he's like, Yeah, don't listen to the Doors version. You won't like that one. It's not as poppy. But Ray Manzarek actually played keyboards with Echo and the Bunnymen on this version. Okay, see that goes under things I wish I knew before I married you, along with the fact that you'd never seen Jaws. <laughs> Stuff you could have just mentioned couple of years well, ago. Well, you've never seen Goonies, and that's a crime in my book, so I'm, I think you're even. <laughs> it had weird people in it. I, I don't like midgets, okay? And there's midget people in there. There are no midgets. They're short like little people, kids. aren't they? They're, kids. They're called kids. Oh! <laughs> I thought they were midgets. I had some shirts that looked like the opening graphic from Saved by the Bell. Oh! <laughs> Ouch! I, remember, I owned a few of those, too. <laughs> Although, I, I have to say that when we saw the movie Ghost Rider, I immediately thought that the bad guys were like the new invention of the Lost Boys because they had the trench coats and the funky hair. Don't associate Ghost Rider with anything good.
<laughs> that's that's a crime. I know, but the first thing I said is, why did he send the Lost Boys to kill Ghost Rider? That would actually be awesome. <laughs> if we could get a Lost Boys Ghost Rider crossover, even if it stars Nicolas Cage, I will go see that. Nicolas Cage and Kiefer Sutherland? Let's do it. I'm oh. all for it. 